Think about it. In, 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 in America, do we have any enthronement rituals? Enthronement ritual. Believe it or not, this is the language, and this is, this is actually the, the, some of the recipe, and, and they would have recognized it in the ancient world because, you know, they dealt with kings. We, we're very proud of the fact we don't have kings. The only enthronement ritual I could even think of was getting your little crown at Burger King. Like, that's only what I could think of. You know, when do we ever put crowns on? We just don't. All right, let's, let's, let's read and see what we get from this, this enthronement passage. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, the one who speaks, seeks, seeks your, your presence and your anointing, but not just for me. We all need it. We all need the Holy Spirit. Forgive the sins of the one who speaks, for there are so many. And Father, show us Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Men. Enthronement rituals, we don't have them. And so that's actually, this is actually the, the language of a king assuming his title, assuming his proper place, his enthronement, his coronation, as it were. So I, I, I want to, as we kind of dally over this, as we kind of approach it first, we're going to take a look at the text and the doctrine teaching of it. And then I want to move a little step fur, further to what is elicited in me as kind of a crisis in the text. There's a crisis in this text. I want to touch that crisis. I want to massage it. I want to get in there. Because it's my crisis. It's a crisis of doubt. A crisis of doubt. Because it's happening right here in our text. You see that? Do you notice this? And then finally, I want to say, what are some functions? What's some functional, uh, some practical, ethical, functional ways we can use this text and, these, and this teaching? And this is my, my outline that I've been adopting lately. I'm enjoying it. But the enthronement text. Now, how enthronement text is kind of fun. I, I didn't know this until I was studying this, and I don't remember ever hearing about this in seminary. But this is kind of an interesting little note. Does anybody know what the last book of the Hebrew Bible is? The last book of the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. Anyone know? Not Malachi. Not Malachi, the Italian prophet. No, in Hebrew, the very last book of the Old Testament is Second Chronicles. So, and this is, listen to this, listen to this. This is the way Second, this is the last verse of Second Chronicles. Now, they, Matthew, Matthew, get this, he read that Old Testament Bible. He, this would be the last words he would have read. Listen to what it says. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. A little bit similar, isn't that strange? That's strange. Has given me all the kingdoms, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go. Let him go up. Now, what's interesting is there's the go, there's the imperative. It's from a king. He's talking about heaven and earth being given to him. And he, and he commissions the building of the temple. Now, what has been observed is 
Matthew is imitating a little bit of that language. There's a borrowing of language. And that's interesting because you see, all of a sudden, Matthew, first book of the New Testament, is wrapping up stuff from the Old Testament when it comes to who's enthroned, who's in control, who's an, who's an authority. And I love the idea that that ancient writer was, was, was piggybacking with his language onto other teachings. You know why I like that so much? You know why I like that so much? Because it tells me this writer was not a knucklehead. It wasn't a noob. It wasn't somebody who wasn't thinking about what they were doing and trying to present you with something intelligible and, and accurate, something that's insight, insight and, and power to, to teach. And I, I love that because you know what invites us? You know what it beckons us when we see that kind of intention and intelligence in our authors of our Bible? Well, it invites us to study hard because there's stuff there. There's stuff in their intentions. There's stuff in their words. So the, the, the language here itself lends us to understanding that. But then, you know, I was thinking about that. In redemptive history, isn't it a little bit odd, anybody, isn't it a little bit odd that Jesus has to be enthroned? Wait a second, wait a second. Anybody, let's check on this, let's check on our theology. We say God is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they're all without beginning, without end, they're eternal. Live above time. So why, tell me why, does, why is it important that Christ is enthroned? What's, what's happening here? Why? I mean, is this, simply, is, this simply, is this simply them doing something that's already in heaven? Is this a temporal outworking in, the, in real time of an eternal truth? When you read the language there, Christ says, all authority in heaven and earth has been what? Given to, it's been delivered to him somehow in that moment. Like this place, at this stage in his life. At this stage in his development. I just talked about the Son of God having development. How could I dare to say that? Because the scriptures teach us this in the book of Hebrews. Get rid of your static ideas about Jesus. The, the ideas that limit him or, 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 or turn him into some sort of a, an abstraction. Get, get rid of all this. Get rid of this. Because we have the God-man walking. Follow this. Jesus, the Son of God, crown him with many crowns. He is the, he is the king, right? But when he's enthroned as the God-man, you see, when Jesus, when God becomes man, he changes Forever. God changes forever. He changes. Because Jesus is now forever. What? Both God and man fully. So when Jesus, the God man, Jesus the Christ is enthroned, you get, you get, you get who's being enthroned? It's not the Son of God anymore, merely. It's the Son of God, what? Wedded and married and united to flesh, just like to mud, to dirt, to blood. Wow. You see, the enthronement of Christ, where he claims this magisterial, amazing authority. Well, you know what that is. That's a claim for him as the God-man. And that's a different person than it was before the beginning of time. Whew, that's kind of cool. And in fact, Jesus made a big thing of this in John. He even says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to ascend. And that entire process... What I'm, I'm going to earn, I'm going to walk into my glory. Because the glory of the God-man is of a different kind than merely the glory of God the Son. No, this is a kind that's shared. 
This is the kind that you and I can have a piece of it. And that means everything to us, you see? The God-man means there can be a union between God and Tao, between God and Ted, between, even, between, even between God and Eric. Praise him, right? All these things become possible. Ooh, you see, the enthronement is the great exclamation point and a thumbs up from God that the God-man is now on the throne forever. So who is seated in the heavenlies on your account? A man just like you. Praise God. Praise him forever. Let's ask ourselves, now as we can see the enthronement language as it mirrors 2 Chronicles, the ancients would have recognized it. And then if we plot it across redemptive history and the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, we realize that his enthronement, his enthronement was something more glorious than he had before. And how can that be? I don't know, eternal glory can increase somehow, and it does. Praise him. But it, the theology gets even deeper. Because you notice what Christ does when he says. Once you take a look, we actually, in, the, in the, the song, captured it. You notice that the song was such a perfect song. Uh, it's, like, it's, like, it's like Joyce can read my mind. Look at, look at all authority there. You see the all authority? Actually, look at all four lines. Every line begins with a letter, maybe with a word. What is it? All. All, those are all words, those are all words, like omnipresent, <laughs> Omni, like no, and the commands, all, all that I have commanded. All right, first of all, first of all, Jesus is being dressed in God categories. He knows all things. He, he has all authority in heaven. He's co complete cosmic authority. He is command over suns and planets and demons and everything, and the scope of, of, the, of the limits of all creation are right within his authority. These are God categories, right? These are all God categories, and they're all divine categories of omnipotence, all-powerful. Of, 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 you, you, you see what this is getting at? These are the all categories as applied to Jesus. We must apply them. And even though they're transcendent God categories, they apply to him. What are the three things he claims? He, claim, he, he claims all authority. He claims all truth, everything I've commanded. Teach them everything I've commanded, all of my truth. He makes the word all there. And in the end, he says, I will be with you always. There's the word all again. And his all presence. <sighs> what's the point here? I, I was thinking about this. What's, what's, why, why, why make the point with, with, with Jack again and again and again that it's all of me and all of what I said and all of my... Why? I think because it hits at a sad fact about Jack's fallen character. And I'm picking on Jack because he's just like me. And that is... We're always looking for an exception. We're always looking for the category, the case that doesn't work, right? There's something that gets us out. We do this all the time with Jesus. You say, oh, I don't do that to Jesus. Yes, you do every time you neglect some part of his teaching and favor some other part, right? That you like or is more comfortable for you or, or suits your pol politics or your personality, right? We do this all the time. And I love this, these all words. Because they're the, they're the kind of words that get at that heart you and I have. We're looking for the special case. Or we're looking for the special case we present that maybe changes things up again, you know? Well, you know, Jesus, if you, you never dealt with a sinner quite as big as me. Therefore, we have a special case, right? Or maybe God didn't know about what we would discover about human sexuality in the future. Well, there's another special case, you see? We're always trying to create special cases which are inaccessible to God. And therefore, if we create a special case, what can we do? We can do as you please. 
create the special exceptions. And this is one of the reasons why there's this wonderful affirmation of grandeur, I think. Christ is claiming you can't get away from this claim. There is no place to hide in your thinking or, or your heart. Praise him. I love that about God. I love the fact that he chases down excuse makers like me. And he says, no, it's me, all of me, all of who I am, all of who God is. It's just remarkable. The theology of this text places Christ firmly and clearly and beautifully in his divinity. This says, actually, you know what this is? This is the theology of sovereignty. I don't like using the word sovereignty because we, first of all, we don't like kings anywhere in America. We don't have sovereigns. And so we, we, we we're very proud of having thrown off all kings, right? We, it, in fact, we elect our tyrants. Yeah, yeah for us, right? And so <laughs> we don't get off any easier, it seems, but maybe we do in the end. But, but this, 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 uh, this enthronement of, of Jesus, this, 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 uh, this theology, I'm sorry, theology of sovereignty, it's merely his kingliness. I mean, when he says, I am all authority, I'm thinking all authority in heaven and earth, he is the boss of bosses. You get it? He is the, bo- he is the boss of all bosses. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord who tells lords how to act. He, he's meta he's himself above everything. Praise him. Praise him. I think the reason this grandeur is being presented to us in this kingliness of Jesus is because we're looking for that exception. And which brings, kind of flips the question this way. Let's make it a personal question. Is he enthroned in your life? Is he enthroned in your life and thinking? Is he enthroned in, practically in your decision-making? Is he, isn't, that a, isn't that a fair question for me to ask? Isn't that a fair place to take this? I don't merely want this to be abstract theology. Abstract theology is not going to help you. I want a sovereignty that's going to kick you in the butt, right? Because we need that. We need to be kicked. We need to be alert. We need to wake up to this. This this amazing claim of Christ and his sovereign, majestic power. In fact, I want to say one more thing, and I'll be done with this part of the, this theology. is so rich. I want you to hear one thing. There's something that like, torques me. I get, every time I hear it, I get angry. Very popular. I think Elon Musk teaches this now or claims it possibly is true. And this is a big thing for a physicist to come along and say, you know what reality is? It's just a hologram. It's just a projection at a quantum level. You know, all it is is maths. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's, reality isn't real. And I just see Jesus in his majesty. All authority in heaven and earth. Just, just sweeping that kind of garbage aside. And you can sweep it aside too. Don't let people scare you. Don't let this world and this generation with its cleverness imagine it can understand reality better than the sun, who himself claims that heavens and earth are in the scope and his hands and his heart and his love. Praise him. Don't be afraid of this generation. There's so many smart people out there that want to tell you, you don't even, your common sense isn't even worth anything. But all they're doing is rejecting the authority of my king, our king, our savior, and our Lord. Don't be threatened by these jokers anymore. They're playing at things. A lot of times the reason people play at these things, I think, or they play at truth like that, is because in the end they just don't want anybody to tell them what to do. In the end they don't want a God who can tell them, who can bring them to account. They prefer fantasies and jokes 
about the structure of reality in which people are suffering and dying and wounded and hurt and make jokes about them being a hologram. Well, it's just a hologram. You can do whatever you want, right? That's not our Jesus. And that's not his grandeur. And I, I, can, I just can't help but think that the king of kings gets a bit irritated when smart people think they're very smart, tell him the place he made was just an illusion. I doubt they will be able to hold the same sort of attitude towards their internal judgment when it's on them. All right, let's go to the next, go to, let's go to the next, uh, let's go to the next thing now. Because as I kind of, pan, kind of, kind of present to you this, this theology and the, the, the exaltation of Jesus and the way he claims his own enthronement, that's all good and that's all going good, but I don't, are you like me? Does anybody else get tunnel vision when you get scared about something? When you're just scared, just scared about what's going to happen. And do you ever notice this happens that as, as a problem gets bigger and bigger in your head, you, you just can't, you can't even think about who you got to call. You can't think about playing bills. You can't, you can't remember what's on TV. You, you can't remember who you, because all you can think about is what? What you're scared of, what you, what's happening to your body. When you get afraid about our bodies, when you're afraid about finances. You, fear and doubt. doubt. The reason I, I, and this is this point right in this text, I think this text just becomes a whole new level. Because Jesus is on the throne, just where he belongs. And we're understood for who we are. Because some of us are going to worship and some of us are going to doubt. And it's probably going to switch week in and week out. Amen? <laughs> some week you'll be a worshiper and some week you'll be a doubter. But that is who we are, right? That is what we bring to the table. That is who we are in the moment of crisis. And I love that it's in the story. You know, it's funny. I, I remember this very clearly as a kid. I thought I was embarrassed by this. I thought they blew it. I remember thinking, I remember wondering, why do they, why do they include these details like this? Because that's embarrassing. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean the heroes of the faith were like, weren't sure this was true? How could that be? I remember being kind of frightened by that. And now that I'm older, and I've had a real good taste of doubt, a mouthful of dust and doubt in my mouth, now I'm like, oh, that's why. <laughs> oh, that's why. Oh, that's why. So 2,000 years later, when I'm pulling my hair out, my doubts don't separate me from God's love. Praise Him. I love the way that God would, God would memorialize, and Matthew would keep in the text this little note that the leaders of, my, of the faith who, whose writings I, I would read or, and who preached great sermons, that these were the very people who wondered in that moment, you've got to be kidding me. Is he really alive from the dead? Have you ever seen dead men walking? I have never have. And I can imagine having that same thought just even looking at him and just looking at him. Just imagine I'm looking at him and then maybe when he starts when he's about 100 feet in the air, I go, well, I guess he is God. Holy cow, look at that. Like, I don't know what point does... And you know what's funny? Is there is no point where the evidence overwhelms your doubt. You realize that there is no point for that. There is no point where you have so much evidence you don't have any doubts. That's garbage. It doesn't exist. Because faith is a gift to the soul by the Spirit that sees, that sees, what it, sees the thing it believes in and believes in it. Not because of proofs. They simply, they simply are like dressing. They're like window dressing and gravy on top. Because remember, there were men who saw him rise from the dead but did not believe. The soldiers, they saw the, they, they saw the angels who, who came and shattered that tomb. 
and it just took a nice, tidy sum of money for them to never mention it again. Because <laughs> the truth didn't matter. The truth very rarely matters to us. All right, well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You may remember it, and, there, and some of us come from church traditions where if you expressed doubt or if you asked questions, you got scolded. Anybody grow up in a church like that? Anybody grow up around that kind of spirituality at all? Anybody? Well, I'm glad none of you had to worry about that. That's a terrible, terrible thing that happens in churches where young children, especially if they ask any questions at all, that is regarded as a sin. Because doubt's sin. Yes, sometimes it is. Actually, there's two words for doubt in Greek. And you know the one in James? Remember the one in James? If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So it's a very particular case, by the way. And if he doubts that, that God is a giver of wisdom. By the way, if you doubt God is the giver of wisdom and gives it, then you are, you're doubting his fundamental character. But that's the kind of doubt that's sin. What kind of doubt's that? That's the doubt that comes from unbelief. You know what that doubt always looks like? Suspicion. I don't know, God. Prove it. Prove it. Prove, prove you love me. That's, that's evil doubt. A demanding spirit that asks God to perform like a monkey. Show me what I want to know. Show me so I don't have to worry anymore. It's, you serve me, prove it. I remember somebody saying, uh, somebody intellectual saying, I'll give God a test. I challenge God to appear in my office in the next 15 minutes if he's real. 15 minutes went by, guess he's not real. Our God does not honor that kind of doubt. But there's another doubt that comes from faith. There's a doubt that comes from faith. What's the doubt that comes from faith? We've all heard it. We've all heard it in our own hearts. Jesus met it. If you can, he says to the man, if you can, will you heal my son if you can? If you can, Jesus says. He says that. You just say, if I can. Everything's possible to him who believes. And remember what the man says? I believe. Help my unbelief. That's holy doubt. That's holy doubt. That's the doubt that believes and grabs and then wonders. You know, remember, remember, look, you, how can you not wonder these things if you're honest? I mean, honestly, even Paul says, what is Paul? Paul must have wondered about it. Remember he has this little comment. He says, you know what? If Jesus has not been raised, then we, you know what the consequence of that is, right? If Jesus has not been raised, you know what the consequence is, don't you? We're suckers. We're not just suckers. We're losers. I mean, we are so off the train. We don't have a hope. Well, what's Paul engaging in there? He's countering, he's, count, he's courting his doubts and telling you what they look like in front of him. Praise God for that. Because we're, and, 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 you know, let's go one step further. Why do we know they doubted? Oh, I know. Matthew was looking at, he was looking at one of the disciples' face and it looked just like Deepak when I've been preaching too long, you know? It's just, just kind of surly and I, I don't know if I believe this or not. No. Why do we know they doubted? Because these were such godly men that they told people. They wouldn't dare let anybody think they had a greater faith than they actually had. Because that would be dishonest. So, you know, I can just picture Barnabas leading into Peter and he goes, you know, watching him fly away like that was pretty powerful, but I'm really wondering whether he was really real. Was he real? Oh, I touched him. Oh, did you? I didn't get a chance. Because it messes with your head. That stuff messes with, people walking around after being executed messes with anybody's head if you're paying attention. Some doubt it. 
And I just feel kind of comforted across the centuries because all that theology about Christ enthroned is fine and it's good and I turn to it in my darkest days. But there are moments of tunnel vision where you, don't, you can't think anymore. And, and you can't remember why you had hope. And you're just sitting there and you just need Jesus to hold you and you need to know he will hold you. He loves us even when we doubt him. What is, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> what a sweet Savior. What a sweet smell of grace. Don't you smell it? I smell it. Grace! These guys shared their doubts. Do you share yours? I have two places God attacks me with doubt. One scientific. When I look at the age and size of the universe, and, I, and you were to tell me at the age and size of the universe, we are nothing but a vapor. Like, we are nothing. Absolutely. We're dust in the wind. We're nothing. In the age and size of this universe, and yet we claim the God who made it specially loved them. And when I, you know, it comes into my head, the little, the little doubt comes in. How could you claim? How could you? Hey, Carolyn, hey, he doesn't love you. How could anybody like you know? And and because it sounds preposterous, because it's like I'm in the Lucky Sperm Club. Like I just got in. How did I get in? How did we? How did we happen of all San Francisco find the eternal God who made all things? Well, that's the way it works. You see where the doubt creeps in? Why would I share that with you? Because I have found <laughs> salvation at the feet of a sovereign Savior who I trust and believe in. And you can too, even when you struggle with doubt. My other doubt comes in a different form. My other doubt's actually spiritual. And that's the, the doubt of the horrors of my conscience. I can't do anything about that. Some of you have horrors in your conscience going way back. I have those. It causes doubt. Could God love one such as me? Could he? And I comb the scriptures to find the most evil and desperate men he's loved. Men and women. And I go, ah, there I am! And I'm reading this text right here with the, with the I mean, they are the superstars of spirituality. And I'm right there with them. There I am. Some of them doubt it. Thank you, Father. Thank you that your servants were such a great illustration of your grace. <laughs> I can get all over that. Why am I sharing this with you? Why am I sharing my doubts? Is it to discourage you? No, it's for the same reason they shared theirs. Because it, it's to beckon you in. Don't be afraid. Come in out of the cold. Right? You know, some of us have thought our doubts disqualified us. They didn't. <laughs> Praise him for being such a wonderful savior. So doubts don't disqualify us. And so well, what can we do from here on out? I think there's some ethical things, some ethical and functional things that are being taught to us about ministry right here. Let's talk about them and let's get out of here. But first, I think the first thing this teaches us is that we have a transcendent ministry. There's one thing I did not share with you in the alls of that text. And I don't know if anybody noticed it. But there is a particular formula, and actually, by the way, the text, by the way, you know, Matthew 28 was hotly contested as to whether it was actually original, because it's the only place in the New Testament where the Trinity is actually said that cleanly. It's the only time. And a lot of people like to think the Trinity, a lot of modern critical scholars like to attack the Trinity and say the Trinity was made up later. But the problem is it's sticking right here in Matthew, and there's no copy of Matthew, no copy at all that doesn't have it. Even Eusebius and Tertullian later reading this, they quote, like, they, it's the only copy known. I think Eusebius shortens it a little bit, but, but no, you can't make any hay of it because there's no copy made. 
Now, what's, what's important about that? What's that preposition in? Jesus said he had authority in heaven and earth. Remember when we were seated in the heavenlies? How is it that Gina can operate in a heavenly sphere, or my sister Shauna, or my sister Carol, or my brother Ted? How can they be operating in a spiritual sphere? How can that be, how can that be possible in, in, the, in the real world of things that we live in, like the real world? The eternal son was the God-man. He bridges heaven and earth, and he is physical and eternal. And do you see what a bridge he is for us? He's the promise that your seat in heaven is secure because he's seated there in his flesh. And you, even though you're not there in your flesh, are seated there in your spirit. What a wonderful turnabout. And guess what? We're all going to be there in our flesh. Praise him. You see, there's a wonderful picture in here that we are engaged. You know what the ministry is? You know what I'm doing? I am participating in the, in the ascension ministry of Jesus. He's up there now. He's working. And so I work. And so we work together. That's who we are. We are the ascension ministry of Jesus. That's what he's laying on these guys. You, he's take, he's take, remember, he's taking all that authority and that grandeur. What is he doing? He's giving it to He's laying it there for them and sending them with it. He's giving them all this divinity and theology about who he is to say, I, this is who you're participating in. And, and when he says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, well, that word in, that into idea. <sighs> Don't you remember? Don't you remember? We're in him. He's in us. Now, when God puts you in the Trinity, well, what could be a better place for you for hope? Amen? Like, what could be a better place for hope if the power of the Spirit is on one side, the love of the Son is on the other, and behind you is all the will of the Father forever? <laughs> anybody, anybody, anybody in a, a more secure situation than that right now? We are participating in the ascension ministry of Jesus. <laughs> and I don't, you guys should be more excited, honestly. Come on. This is wonderful. But I want you to see the second point that comes right out of it. Because as I teach that, as I call you to that, as I call you to its hope, I love the fact that there's doubt here. Because you know what that means? This isn't triumphalism. Look, the one thing I don't need is, or maybe you don't need, is, is good-looking Christian men. Like, oh, I'm supposed to be me. Leading you. Leading. Onward, Christian soldiers. Let's go off to war. There's a, there's a weird triumphalism in Christianity that, we're, that, that, that it's all about winning. And if you suffer, if you, well, heaven knows if you suffer, if you fall into suffering, well, that's, that, something's wrong. You did something wrong. Jesus is enthroned because of his suffering. <laughs> you remember? He went the suffering he went through. It'll be the same to you. It'll be the same for you and in you. This doubting is not a great place to be. Doubting is not the hopeful place to be. Doubting is not a place you want to stay, is it? Doubting is a place you're trying to get out of. Ah, and God leaves doubting in order for you to try to get out of it to go to him. He is constantly goading you, constantly calling you, constantly using even those weaknesses in you, the fear and the doubt, to do what? To train your heart and mind, to train you yet again Eyes on him, eyes on Jesus, eyes on Jesus. No triumphalism here. If I go out and get hit by a bus, Jesus reigns, and I beat you all to heaven. So there you go. You should be as happy as punch for me. I, you think I'm kidding? I'm not even You should throw a party, because I will be finally happy. 
no, no longer in the grips of depression, fear, anxiety, my failure, and the horrors of my wounded conscience. So the first principle is we've been given a transcendent ministry. And the second principle is no triumphalism in it. It's the hard work, and it will be hard at times. Let's not be afraid. But I think it gets better. I think it gets better. Um, what I see is this is a bias for action. Now, I, Jesus, his word, go. Get, get out, go. This is so urgent. Do you, know, do you know how urgent his go is here? Do you know how urgent his go is here? They don't stop. They don't stop watching, by the way. He goes up into heaven, and they're all standing there just like you can, I can picture Eric. Where'd he go? Yeah, we, we would all, they, they, they were there long enough that an angel had to show up and go, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? Get to work. Go. Can you just tell you to go? <laughs> Why are you standing here looking at heaven? You're told to go. We are to have a bias for action. Uh, and this is one of the gifts that I think that, uh, that Deepak has been to me as a friend and, and other, other men that have mentored me. And it's something that we need to constantly be goaded by is are we choosing to have another meeting and talk about it? And pray about it, or are we going to do something? Are we going to act? Are we going to get out there in front? Are we going to go? Are we going to show up in people's lives? Are we going to be in play? Are we just going to make the decisions? Uh, to, you know, I, and maybe, maybe part of it is we just need God kind of kick us a little bit to do that too. But we can pray for that. We can ask him to launch us. And, and I just think a bias for action as opposed to a bias for more conversation. That's what I'm trying to get at. Presbyterians are famous for this, you know? In fact, I could talk about a bias for action in many Presbyterian churches, and you know what the action would be? Let's form a committee to study what a bias for action would look like. They'll get over forward to us sometime next year. Anybody want to be on that committee? No. What's the point? What's the point? Rearranging deck, ter- deck chairs on the Titanic. You ever heard that expression? Rearranging deck, ter- deck chairs on the Titanic? That's what switching church memberships is. What's the point? We, the, the, the place is going down. We got work to do. We have people to reach out. Reach. Will you pray with me that God kicks us into action then? And, and that we would develop a bias for action? I love, uh, look, I think prayer is the great action. Bias for prayer, if you want to call it that. That's fine with me. Let's pray then. Deepak said he's willing to start praying on Sunday nights. Now, I've never heard Deepak ever offer to pray before, and I'm holding him to it. He doesn't even like that I'm holding him to it. And... If you, would you like to join him and me and Shauna and we start praying here? Because why, we, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how we're gathering here week in and week out. And we have a blessed worship. We have a blessed fellowship. We've had blessed from the blessings of the word of God. But I don't see us praying and seeking him like we should. And I'd like to see that with you. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Bias for action. That's what's in this text. That is supposed to shape the people of God. Remember I said Theology. I love theological teaching, but theology is a lot like fish. It, it, after three days, it begins to stink if you don't use it or eat it or devour it, use it functionally. Theology just begins to fester and turn you into a, an arrogant person, proud of what you know. What's the fourth principle for ministry? Because we have here, we've been given a transcendent ministry, participating in the ascension ministry of Jesus. (laughs) There is flesh on high, the flesh of my Savior, where my spirit is seated. And so is yours too. Praise him. And then we find out we don't have to walk around 
like we're, like we're like with some sort of artificial triumph. No, not at all. We can be very honest. We don't have to fake it till we make it. We can tell people how much we're faking it and encourage them along. But then there's that, and then we finally there's a bias for action that Christ is describing. But I want to, one last thing I want to talk about because there's so much more to talk about in here. But I want you to notice one more thing that I think is important in this generation. And that is, not all evangelism is colonialism. I'm going to repeat that. Not all evangelism is colonialism. What do I mean by that? It's been very popular in this generation to talk about missional work this way. In fact, most anthropologists have done this. That all missional work was doing was importing a white Western culture and white Western values to other cultures so that ultimately we could sell them the crap that we like. <laughs> they could become a market, right? They become another market. And the appropriation into our, our values is the point of missional work. Now, that is what the, that's what the uh, anthropologists think about Christians. It's not pretty. So when I was a kid... True story. When I was a kid, my dad told me, missionaries can be very foolish Christians. You should be pay attention. When I was in school at Penn, my dad went to Penn. Penn had a tremendous anthropology de- department. A very famous professor there named Warren Isley. And he had a wonderful book called The Immense Journey about, yeah, about, the, about, uh, about evolution. Anyway, I don't know why I remember that. <laughs> um, but my dad was taught a story. And they all laughed about it. Did you know that those Christians are so foolish and they do all this colonial work, they're just trying to make everybody turn into white people like them. In fact, there were three of those knuckleheads went down to Ecuador. And you know what they did? They walked right into a, a, a killing, a, 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 a tribe known for its violence and its hatred of outsiders. And they got what they deserved, those yahoos. They were all killed immediately when they entered that village. My dad told me that story as a child. True story. And it is a true story. It's about the Aka Indians. So imagine my surprise years later when I was in, at Wheaton College and I was sitting in Wheaton Chapel and listening to somebody named Elizabeth Elliot. Now Elizabeth Elliot starts telling us a story about three white men who went to greet a tribe called the Aka Indians. And I remember sitting there going, I could swear I know this story. But I, I, it still is not clicking. It's not, I'm not putting it together yet. It seems a little familiar. And of course, uh, his name was uh, Jim Elliott. And Jim Elliott was famous for his, his, actually his journal. And it's, when you go to Wheaton, you hear all these Jim Elliott stories. But he had something in his journal never forgot, I've never forgotten. And you could write this down, you'd never forget it. It's wonderful. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I've always loved it. Isn't that great? He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain that which you can never lose. That was in his journal. And he and his friends, they knew how violent the Aka were. They knew that. They were hoping that their gifts would appease them and not scare them, but it didn't work. And the Aka thought they were threatening them and mocking them. In fact, one of the Indians said, the fact that the guy was smiling so big, a very, very <laughs> white boy from the 50s, hi, <laughs> my name's Jim. And so, well, they thought, the, the Indians thought he was laughing at them. They thought it was mocking, making fun of them. And the hand, the hand outstretched, that's, that's an attack. It's an attack. Does anybody know how all those Aka Indians came to Christ? Well, Jim's wife went back. She went back. 
And they were floored that the wife of the man they killed came back to share the love of Jesus with them. That's not colonialism, is it? That's the presence of Christ's authority over heaven and earth setting. We are called and we are given by Jesus cross-cultural authority. And if there's one thing this generation has done, it's shut us up this way. Who are you to go talk to another culture? Who are you to talk to somebody who's Spanish? Who are you to talk to somebody who's Chinese? Who are you to talk to somebody who's Indian? I don't need your white God. Right? You're forbidden. And, and I, want to hear, I want you to hear this clearly from me and from the scriptures and from Christ's own mouth. He gave you authority to preach the gospel to any culture that you need and every culture you need. Praise him. Go and do it. You're forbidden to in this generation, I know. Ignore them. It's one of the victories of Satan, to isolate us, to isolate people in their culture so they can never finally grasp the beautiful grace offered in Jesus. Offered, I think, through us in Jesus. Remember, we're in the Trinity. We're, we're there, we're there. We're center, we're center, center stage of eternal love. Sent bias for action. I get so excited. Oh. Let's pray. Dearest Father, I thank you for your words. <laughs> I thank you. You told us all this. I thank you that your son is this place of him being enthroned. And, and would you forgive us, Father, for being Americans? I, it, well, there's something about, about us that just doesn't. It really, there is a weakness we have. We don't understand kingship. We don't understand your, some of your splendor and enthronement. It's kind of mysterious to us because we're all kings ourselves, I guess. But would you, would you uh, humble our hearts, Father, before, before your son? <laughs> will you humble us before your son? And we, will we, we thank you for this story, uh, this wonderful picture of your son, King of kings, Lord of lords. This flesh, this human flesh enthroned forever in glory. And that's just a promise that we're going to get there too. And it's, it's going to be in our flesh too. Wow! Words fail us, Father. Wow! What a Savior. Father, will you, will you increase our hopes and joys tonight? If some are doubting and perhaps have been fearful of their own doubts, let them be encouraged. Let them be encouraged by these disciples here and what the story they told. And let them be encouraged by what a wonderful, powerful, living Savior you were to them. You turned those men into lions. For your, for, your, for your gospel. You can do the same thing here. Father, we just thank you for this word, these words. And would you comfort each one of us in the gospel and the good news tonight. Encourage each one of us and, and, and do that sending work. Teach us to have a bias for action. A bias to, to speak. Move us out cross-culturally with your authority to declare that we know, we know the answer. Our God has spoken to us all the things we need to know. We can trust him. He's always with us. My heart's filled with praise for you, Jesus. Thanks for being such a wonderful Savior. Amen. Amen.